Welcome to the 15th episode of Studio Break. I'm your host, David Linaway. Today I'm going to share an interview I did with Shona McDonald, a Massachusetts artist originally from Scotland. And again, we'll listen to her talk all about her various bodies of work, but most recently her experiences as an artist in residence for a year in Roswell, New Mexico. All coming up, so please stay tuned. Here we are, and I'm talking with Shona McDonald this morning. How are you? I'm fine, Dave. Thanks. It's great to have you on. You know, obviously, um, you know, I had you as a, a student uh, quite a ways back, or at least a little ways back. So it, I don't know. It's it's always nice to kind of have people on that I've been I don't know talking to for a long time and kind of respect and you know have have similar interests, obviously. Um, but I think one of the first things that if people don't know you, I mean, obviously, you're not from the states. Um, so, if you could just maybe talk a little bit about, um, you know, where you're from and maybe what your experiences were like growing up as a kid. Okay. Um, well, I'm from Aberdeen in northeast Scotland, and it's a it's actually a very prosperous town. It's an oil town. It's right in the North Sea, and I mean, its history is fishing, but then. One day, uh, somebody struck gold in the North Sea, and it became a, a booming oil town. So, it's not at all an artistic town. It's a very, you know, um, financial business business type of a place. So, when I, um, in some ways, I really was <laughs> kind of desperate to get out of there when I was growing up because, well, not when I was growing up, but when I, by the time I reached late teens, I knew what I wanted to do because it wasn't really many art opportunities there. Although there is an art school there called Grey School of Art, but I just wanted to go somewhere um, just a little bit more exciting and bigger. Um, and I, so then I moved to, to Glasgow for undergrad. But growing up, I, I was, I'm the middle of three kids, and uh, my dad is a civil engineer, my mom is a teacher. Um, so he, And they didn't have any artistic inclination whatsoever. My older sister Heather went to art school as well, um, and I followed in her footsteps. But my parents were really encouraging of us, which is quite a leap of faith because they themselves had no idea about what art school was or meant. And you know, they they, they allowed two two of their kids to go through art school, so that was really that's really something. I really appreciate that, but. Um, no, it was a very sort of, um, you know, quite idyllic childhood in some ways. My dad's from the Highlands, so all of our relatives, a lot of our relatives live up there in kind of Braveheart part of Scotland. Right, right. <laughs> um, and, you know, that was really lovely as a kid going up to these very rural, out-of-the-way places with long, strange names like Ardor Seer and Athelty Bowie and, you know, these mystical places. Um, so, yeah, it was, a, it was a lovely childhood in some ways. And, you know, I got a lot of support for my work. Sure. Well, in, was there anything in particular, I guess, that kind of, I guess, propelled you to that? Or was it more, I guess, um, there's a lot of artists that aren't particularly good at sports. Um, <laughs> I thought maybe that would be the answer that most uh, everybody gives. <laughs> well, I didn't do any... Um, I don't come from an athletic family whatsoever. I mean, my family are, you know, a family of readers, and my mum's a craft person, and, you know, 
my dad is a gardener and it, we, there was no team sport or anything like that uh, so I didn't partake of any of that sort of thing but I mean when I was in school they had a uh, when I was in primary school and then even secondary school they had these sort of special art classes and I was always picked to be part of them and it just it was almost like you know you put yourself through a sieve when you're a kid and uh, and just whatever comes out at the bottom is <laughs> what you're going to end up doing and sure. I mean I went to a career counsellor in secondary school and they were saying you know saying well teaching would be a good profession for you and blah 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 and I just sort of thought oh, I don't think so <laughs> and I said to the career counsellor I just wanted to go to art school and they sort of looked at me with this frozen face <laughs> and then just moved on quickly to the next student because I didn't know what to say but it always seemed fairly obvious to me that that's what I was going to do it wasn't really a question it just sort of you know came out uh, naturally in a way which I suppose is the best way for it to happen and and so when you started studying was there I mean is there is there a difference in terms of the way that it might be approached as opposed to the way it is in the states I mean is it pretty much again like a you know just like an over overview of the different studio arts and no, it's completely different in the UK. I mean, it might have changed now, but when I was there, it was uh, it, it was called the tutorial method, where from a very, very early age, you're thrown in to a studio on your own with other students. Mm-hmm. Just a big open studio that's split up, and then you just, you just work. There's no classes, there's no grades, and the professors come around. They're not even called professors, they're called tutors. It's more informal. They come around and they just talk to you about your individual projects. So I would say if it was if you were somebody that really wasn't autonomous, you would probably sink in an environment like that. And I did see some students struggling that didn't have a clue how to get going. Um, the first year of art school, uh, you you did study all of the different disciplines for one year, but then after that, you're, you have to you have to apply to one of the departments. And painting and drawing at Glasgow is the most popular one mm-hmm. um, and I had a tutor that tried to get me to go into ceramics and I just said I don't I just don't want to go into ceramics I just right. knew I wanted to do painting and uh, you apply and you get into that department and then for the next three years you just work on your own so in some ways I didn't really learn any anything technical I didn't learn how to mix paint I didn't learn really any of the techniques I sort of taught myself, and I had some bad habits because um, I just, you know, for all I knew, you mixed oil paint with water. There was nobody right. that was really teaching that. It was more just sort of walking around talking to you about. Um, I mean, tutors in Scotland back then, they would tend to just go off in these long stories about themselves. You probably would have loved it, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> and then that would be how you learned, was just listening to their stories about themselves. So it was certainly wasn't the kind of place it would be for everyone, but I didn't know any better, so, you know, but when I moved to the States and it was all grades and classes and I didn't know what hit me, I was sort of like, gosh, what's this? Sure. <laughs> it's so formal and organized. <laughs> um, and so what kind of, I guess, what kind of work did you, I guess, say, how about this, apply to graduate school? With, was I mean, obviously it sounds like a lot of painting, but... Yeah. Um, what, are the, what was the work like? Well, Glasgow, when I was there, was very figurative. So we did a lot of life drawing and life painting. I mean, really rigorous for, you know, for 
two or three years, and that's I feel like that's how I learned to see was drawing the figure and painting the figure. And um, so when I applied to graduate school, I, I took one year off, and I I mean I was making pretty dreadful sort of pseudo surrealist work, you know, sort of knockoff Frida Kahlo, and I don't really know how to describe it even, but it was still figurative content, but um, I was trying to branch away from objective painting, mm-hmm. but I didn't know how to do that, and so I had a mishmash of figure drawings, figure paintings, and then these this other work that I call my real inverted commas studio work, which was actually the worst I mean, the objective figurative painting is much better. And I think when I got to graduate school, I I really wanted to break away from the figure, not because, you know, I don't respect figure painting, but for me, I just it had been spoon-fed to me, and I just I had to just find my own voice and leave that behind. So uh, that was, you know, that was a concentrated effort on my part was to just move away from that. But it was a very, it was very unformed. It was very... It was a terrible portfolio, really, but I suppose there must have been something in it that grabbed the attention right. of the faculty. Maybe it was a potential. Maybe there was some potential in it that they saw. Right. Um, and what what was it like? I mean, you, you talked about this, the, the system being different, but obviously, um, and just, I guess I, I feel obligated to say something then, but because um, you went to, to UIC, right? Yeah, well, I, f- I spent the first uh, year and a half down in Carbondale, where you were, okay. where you followed after, um, and that was that was more laid back. Um, that was actually a little bit similar to the way I described Glasgow in the, um, you know, you got in that you got a studio and you just started working, and that didn't really work for me. That's the reason I transferred up to Chicago, and the reason it didn't work is that I just had three years of that, right. and I wanted something different, so I applied for something that turned out to be, couldn't have been more different if it tried, because <laughs> when I went to UIC in the early 90s, it was very conceptual, and I had, I'd had <coughs> uh, no experience of that. So I was uh, pretty much knocked off my perch by that. Um, it was tough, you know, it was very rigorous. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and I, you know, I had the chance to work with Julia Fish, Ronnie Carswell, Phyllis Branson, and <coughs> Tony Tassett. And, you know, it was really challenging, very difficult for me. And, well, and, and I know that, you know, because I, I think I've heard you speak in the past about it being such a conceptual, you know, driven school at the time. So, I mean, um, was there, obviously, I'm sure a lot of experimentation, but was there ever, like, a time where you kind of felt like, oh, maybe I'll... Maybe I'll be doing something else aside from painting, or was it was it always something that you just kind of felt like you could follow through and kind of I don't know, kind of see what was on the other side of it? Because I think sometimes, well, even with me, I mean, mm-hmm. and this is a bit further down the road. I mean, it seems like painting is something that is like, well, maybe you could do something else because they've done painting for a while, you know. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, I definitely was challenged by faculty to do other things, but I felt pressure from my peers because there wasn't really anybody else painting around me. Um, so I did make forays into different um, medium materials, um, but I just found I got pulled back to painting. 
because I felt, I guess the way I felt was other things I was doing were, were other things outside of the main practice. And the main practice always seemed to be painting or drawing. Um, so when I went and I had to do something else, it always felt like something else. And um, it never felt like I could do that one thing all the time. But the, the thing that that's ironic and interesting is when I left UIC, you know, which is what, you know, about 15 years ago now, now actually I'm probably doing more different things than I was when I was there. And I've, I've started doing floor pieces and um, I do, you know, I work a lot of different material now. And so I think it really, it took a long time for the, the benefits of being there to kind of show up in my work. But I mean, it really has, I think, over the years. It's, it's, it was a good program to go to because it gave you permission to, to do whatever, you know, to work in whatever. There were no departments. And I think, you know, when you look at the way art schools are going now, that's really, that's the model. You know, right. banishing departments and people just sort of working on their own. So, I mean, it was a, quite a pioneering school at the time. But uh, it would have been nice to have had more people painting just to, you know, just as a sort of, to have that dialogue. You know, right. It's kind of nice to sit around and talk, nerdy painter talk <laughs> with someone. Sure. And I, did, I didn't have that. Well, so. and, it's, and it's interesting, too, because, I mean, there's, you know, even though that this isn't exclusively a, a painter's podcast, I mean, I think certainly there's, you know, just because I am and kind of gravitate towards certain things. I mean, I, I kind of understand exactly where you're coming from because I don't know. There's been, there's been times where I've done stuff that I've really liked, but it just feels like I'm putting on somebody else's shoes or, yeah. you know, it just kind of feels a little different. Um, so, you know, in terms of then having all this freedom then, um, in a, in a slightly different way to kind of do what you want instead of maybe kind of feeling tethered to making figurative kind of work. What, what did you wind up doing? Uh, in grad school? Yeah. Well, it, and I, obviously I'm kind of using this to talk about, you know, what kind of transition to, you know, yeah. where you are now. So I'm just kind of curious. Well, uh, I didn't get my work together in grad school at all. And it was, uh, it was, it was a very difficult period. I didn't have one of those scintillating, fantastic drop dead degree shows. I just didn't, it was, it was a two year program. And I feel like it was a struggle pretty much all the way along. And, you know, it's funny, though, I talked to one of my mentors uh, about this many years ago, and I, I just was lamenting the fact that I just couldn't get it together in grad school. And he said, well, thank God, otherwise, what would you be doing now? <laughs> I thought it was a great comment. But um, well, what I ended up doing was I moved very slowly away from the figure, and I did, I broke the figure down into small fragments, like, I would do a painting of little knees and popping up into a landscape or little fingers and hands waving. Um, it was quite, you know, I suppose quite quirky merging of figure, figurative forms into landscape, but it didn't get fully realized. It was scratching the surface and it was quite timid work. And I was doing a lot of silk screens where I would take photographs of either found photographs or my own photographs of parts of the body and then um, make silk screens and then silk screen those onto surfaces and paint over them. But I felt too indebted to the photographic image. So I would kind of paint around the silk screen, you know. It just wasn't very brave work. Um, so, you know, there were seeds sown of what was to come later, but 
nothing was really fully realized or uh, made, you know, made a, a fully rounded body of work. It was frustrating. It was a frustrating two years, but, uh, I mean, it, you know, art making is frustrating, so I think it taught me how to be patient. Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, and so I, I guess then in following all that up then, I mean, what, what was, when did you really feel like you did come into kind of knowing what you wanted to do and kind of feeling like you owned it, I guess? Uh, that's a great question. I, and I know exactly when. It was, uh, as soon as I left grad school, I, well, I had no opportunities when I left school. I, I didn't move to New York. I, I didn't really have the money or the means. So I, and I was quite happy to use Chicago as my, you know, place to be. I and mean, I loved, I don't mean use Chicago, I mean be in Chicago. That was where my few tiny network <laughs> contacts were. And so I, I didn't have any money or any job, but I was stupid enough to rent a studio at the time um, before I left grad school. So I, you know, I basically moved to my workout with UIC down the road to the meatpacking pa- district, which then was still a bunch of old rundown warehouses. Didn't know how I was going to pay the rent or anything. And um, but it was the best move I ever made because I found a way to cobble together money for rent, which I think was only about 200 or 300 a month. And I just worked almost every day, um, just, you know, kept working, working, and I started to really break some ground, and I got more invested in making paintings, the old three, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and uh, the figurative elements started to morph away and become more, um, they weren't, the paintings weren't so symbolic or iconographic, they became more figures became more fragmented and, you know, uh, the work became more abstract and uh, that was really when I started to, you know, just understand more about myself and those two years from, I guess it would be 96 to 98, I was teaching part-time, just one class here, there and everywhere and, you know, just sort of shedding off all those voices that I'd heard for the last two years and no, I built up a community with people. A lot of people that I went to grad school with stayed on in Chicago, and built, I built up a community with them, and start you know started to show a little bit. And that was really those were two really important years. Right, right. Well, and and so how did you wind up? I guess transitioning more into, I guess your 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 I guess more landscape kind of investigative work. I know that you know I remember. I can't remember if I actually saw this in person or it might have been sometime after kind of learning about like the like the paper envelope kind of kind of work. Oh yeah. And I remember specifically like and you know that's something that's actually come back I believe at least in some of the stuff that I've seen in the past couple of years but you know mm-hmm. I just remember that big kind of wavy piece um so I don't know I I'm, how did, that was just kind of like a transition through that abstraction. Yeah, let's see. How did I um, get on to doing that work? Um, oh, well, I had a had a bump in the road, and I think it was 1998. I had I ran into some visa problems and went back. lived in Scotland, actually, for six months while I was sorting all that out. didn't have a studio, and I was staying with my parents. In my studio was my bedroom, my childhood bedroom. It, sort of, it felt very kind of deflating and sort of, you know, internal, you know, in a sort of Emily Dickinson, Sylvia Plath sort of way. Um, I had a, you know, a job job. I worked as a data input person 
just I was basically just stalling, just biding time until things worked their way out. And I didn't have a studio, and I started uh, collecting things. And one of the things I started collecting was envelopes because I was working in one of my jobs was an admin secretary, and uh, I was answering mail and doing things like that. And I started collecting envelopes out of garbage, the recycling, and really just liked them, you know, just as a, the way that stamp collectors would collect stamps. And I was taking a lot of walks, um, you know, in Aberdeen, that's right in the North Sea, and I was taking a lot of walks, looking at the sea, and of course, wasn't putting any of this together at the time, just they seemed like different activities. And then, so when I finally got all of these stuff worked out, came back to the States, um, got a studio up and running again, I started making these collages with the envelopes, and they started out as big chunks of material and then I started winnowing it down and making it much finer and started working much more with the, it was very material led work, material driven and I uh, started cutting them into really fine slivers and laying them out horizontally and you know lo and behold they sort of started becoming like seascapes, memory pieces in a way and other people have read into that work and talked about it being like, you know, labor, suggesting labor, like weaving, things like that, which I never, I don't, right. uh, didn't, wasn't meaning to suggest in the work, but that's it's quite a happy reference. Um, and, and then I really worked with that material for a number of years. It had a lot of potential for me. Um, and so, in a sense, that was like an entry into landscape was through abstraction. Um, wasn't really, it wasn't a conscious thing at all. Right. It came about oddly. Well, and I, I think, you know, again, that's something that I, I think is really interesting because I think partially, you know, uh, in terms of giving the interviewer away, I guess, I mean, you know, I, I, I learn a lot by traveling to different places and I, I, I thought that maybe perhaps there was something that maybe being kind of thrust into this other city or kind of dealing with that or, or Southern Illinois or any of that kind of transition would be the, the, the thing, but it was really kind of this journey going home. Um, yeah. You know what I mean? And I, I, it's something that's so interesting about that because I think those those kinds of transitions just kind of s- sneak in there. They you do. Know? Or it's, it's kind of like a, um, a stork kind of dropping it off um, after putting all this hard work in, you know. And yeah. there's... But there, yeah. well, there's some—I mean, there's something I can really kind of appreciate, though, in terms of that—that that kind of exploration, you know, because it's just kind of like, again, you kind of see it as being like you're on this path, and you don't necessarily quite understand it, but then you kind of make these little jumps as you're kind of getting through it. Um, so this, you know, that's that's pretty interesting for sure. Um, that's true. I think another thing, just to interject, is when I was living in Scotland and didn't have a studio. <clears throat> There was a feeling, there was a sense that I wasn't making work. And I've since reevaluated that because there are times in our lives when we don't have a concrete space and we're not producing, you know, A, B, C, and D artworks, but that doesn't mean we're not working. Right, right. I, you know, I was working there. I was looking all the time. I was collecting. I was thinking about things I would make. I was sort of biding my time. And I might not ever have made that envelope work if I hadn't had six months where right. I wasn't. Producing uh, on a you know on a high level. I mean, I was making drawings and things, but so I think that sense, that elevated sense of production that we have in school, when we're in school, or in some ways it's an artificial sense. You know, the midterm and final critique are our deadlines, and we have to make 
bodies of work to those deadlines. Well, that's an artificial deadline, and I think most of us know that work made two years ago is still new work. Right. It's not it's not old work, and we don't have to be on this treadmill all the time. So that was a very instructive period for me. In retrospect, it taught me to be very patient. Right. And you know, and to value times where you're just sort of looking and reflecting. Well, and I guess you know, just to kind of further push this out of the the area that we were just discussing. I mean, is, are there any kind of experiences that you kind of have that help influence that, or that that kind of sense of investigation that aren't necessarily directly tied to, you know, th- like that physical act, you know? Because, like for me, you know, I I I, t- I took a vacation right after I finished teaching um, to Las Vegas with a bunch of friends. And um, we wound up we would wind up going out to Red Rocks National Park, you know, during the day, and it's really gorgeous. I mean, yeah. it's just really, you know, there's there's something about kind of being out there and kind of seeing things. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess in a, in a similar way that you can kind of see be really book read about art, but like seeing it in person is kind of different. So I mean, you know, seeing the light, sh- you know, shift and change for all these mm-hmm. different areas of, of landscape is something that really kind of informs me, um, mm-hmm. you know, even if it's not directly tied. So, I mean, is there something, I guess, similar? I mean, you talked a little bit about back home. I mean, is there anything that you found in <laughs> the States <laughs> that, that would be kind of something like that? Or Yeah, well, very recently, I mean, you know that I spent a year in Roswell last year. Right. Towards the end of the residency, well, actually, sorry, in the middle, <clears throat> I started a body of work that was investigating all these, what I found to be fascinating, crazy man-made objects peppered around these vast open deserts. For example, I I just finished a painting that was uh, of the Roswell sewage plant, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which, you know, it's all these beautiful gleaming white forms coming out of this desert, which I I find beautiful. I mean, many people would drive past that and think it was a really ugly um, scene, you know, a sewage plant in a desert. Um, but I, I became absolutely fascinated by these uh, man-made structures. Another series I did in Roswell was a uh, electrical plants coming out of the desert, and I think it's the juxtaposition of these linear graphic forms next to this organic field, and also the, the vertical and horizontal. I mean, there's lots of things that really fascinated me about it. Um, so when I moved back to New England in July, uh, I immediately started seeing the same things here, like uh, people um, people have these, you know, uh, but, I mean, similar things, but very New England-oriented, for example, blueberry cold frames and these similar um, man-made structures, but very much catered towards or tailored towards New England ways of life. So I would be driving around seeing all these green fields with these sort of metal things popping up and snow fences and things like that. So because my eye had been trained to see these things, or I had trained my own eye to see them, and actually I something that really something else that really influenced this was I read um, one of my favourite writers, Edward Casey, wrote a book called The World at a Glance. And there's a whole chapter where he talks about glancing and he, throughout the whole book, he's really trying to throw on on its head the, the whole 
notion that we have in you know Western art history of the gaze and, and this fixed way of looking. And he's actually preferencing this casual uh, idea of the glance, like how we just sort of look around. And he talks about what we do when we're in a coffee shop. You know, we, we go in, we just quickly assess the whole coffee shop in a split second, how many people are there, who's ordering coffee, who's sitting down, who's standing up, how long the line is. And he's sort of saying how much information we glean from these casual glances and why we should really place emphasis on that instead of this idea of fixed gaze, which he's really de-emphasizing. And I just thought it was absolutely fascinating. And I felt like I was doing that when I was driving around New Mexico. I was always, um, you know, having a look out the window quickly, just looking at stuff, taking it in. So that was very influential as well. Um, and, you know, I think I'm still sort of there in, in thinking about these things. Sure. Well, and I think, you know, too, just in, you know, there's certainly like plenty of artists that have kind of become invested in the, in kind of the desert or, mm-hmm. you know, maybe that, that kind of area. But I mean, I, I think it's, um, no, it's it's hard not to kind of see some of these relationships, and I think that it's interesting too that you know even you've, you've talked a little bit about how you know sometimes people will kind of place you in some kind of context, maybe that you were unintended, you know. But um, it's just interesting because you know even seeing these things at a glance, you kind of see that there's deeper mm-hmm. connections that kind of people make. Because you know one of one of the things that I've learned a little bit about recently is just um, you know how much certain certain areas um, are affected by water shortages and how these kind of mass corporations are buying them up and, you know, there might be a a world where people are buying water at a much more expensive rate, but, I mean, they kind of hear you talking about these, you know, these plants or, you know, these things that are kind of sticking out in the desert kind of help and make, I don't know, think about all those relationships, you know. Well, I think also, you know, I'm interested in, in... raising the prosaic to the, a level of something of, of, of beauty, like a sewer, sewage plant, like an electric plant. I mean, those, those things have been designed by someone. And, um, you know, I think for many, many people treat those sites as eyesores, you know, anything but an object of beauty. Um, it's interesting, there's a filmmaker called Derek Jarman that uh, spent his last couple of years. He's a British filmmaker. Actually, his last decade um, living in, in a place called, I think it's called Cellfield, which is a nuclear plant. And he chose it because he really liked the right. look, you know, whereas other people would just think, I don't want to live there. But um, And I think there was also a sense when I was in New Mexico of not, there's a danger for somebody like myself who you know, for which the desert is a very exotic other type of a place, there's a danger to romanticise it and you know, make work that really romanticises it. And I really didn't want to do that. I wanted to, even though I think the desert is incredibly romantic and beautiful and exotic, but I didn't want to make work about that. And right. so I, um, you know, I was sort of glad when I started to, to see these other things. And it was slow and gradual. I wasn't... I didn't wake up one day and think, I'm going to start painting all of the man-made things popping up. It was just they were there. Right. And because the, the desert is so flat, I recognized I saw them more clearly. I mean, in New England, it's so hilly that you don't notice some of the 
these odd structures, but there, because everything's so leveled, they just popped up like these strange plants. Yeah. Well, and so, I mean, you know, in terms, too, of, um, you know, you talked a lot about, you know, abstraction and representation. I mean, does that kind of, I don't know, it, it almost kind of seems like maybe in some ways they, they kind of just go up and down or there's like a cyclical nature to it. I mean, is that something that's always, you know, kind of happening where you're making things that are much more abstracted to making things that are a bit more representational? Or Absolutely, and I, I noticed that in your work, too, in certain, certain bodies of work. The pendulum swings way, way over, like the envelope series, for example. Um, but right now, I would say, is I'm making some of the most realist work I've made in ages. Hmm. But there are still large sections of the work. I mean, I, I, I consider the way the work is composed very abstract. Um, and I, and I, I feel like we're lucky as artists working now because we, you know, the doors, doors are so wide open and in terms of painting, you know, we're, we're very used to seeing painters work with a gazillion different, uh, you know, strings to their bow. Mm-hmm. You know, we're really used to seeing paintings like that now where somebody's, you know, pouring and splatting and modeling and layering all in the same painting. And most of us really work that way now. And, you know, they're sort of free of style in a way. Right. And that's, that's, how, I, that's how I work anyway. It's, it's very... It's very freeing to, to work in painting now, I think. Well, and so, you know, you've talked a little bit about, about compositions as well. I mean, um, and I, I believe um, you talked about, you know, just being such a well-trained kind of observed, you know, figurative figurative uh, painter and drawer that, that kind of informs that. Is that. What kind of process do you go through in terms of coming up with compositions or you know, deciding whether or not you're going to use these kinds of materials. I mean, obviously it depends somewhat where your investigation is going. Mm-hmm. But, um. Well, recently I've been taking, work, working from my own photographs, and I take, I take my own photographs and I download them and I, um, you know, manipulate them and work on them in Photoshop and things, and then I print them out. So I kind of bring them back to, you know, an analog so I'm working this, and I print them out pretty much on eight by ten, the way they come out of the printer, and I have them. Those are the source materials, um, and so I really, I mean, I cobble my paintings together very much. I don't. I, I tried when I was in college. I tried doing the sketching for the painting and planning for the painting. It just never worked. Just always a disaster. I just couldn't work that way. So I, I just have an idea in my head where I'm starting and what I want to do and it can be something really vague Uh, like you know for example the I actually took the the photographs of the Roswell sewage plant the very evening I was leaving Roswell and the sun was going down and I was rushing to to capture this this plant because I'd been driving past it for for the whole year and I, I kept thinking oh that's nice I want to do something with that never had but I I left it till the very last minute to take the photographs but um, and then I, I actually worked on those paintings when I got back here but so I have all these printouts and I have them scattered around the studio and I just lift one up and look at it and then I put it down and I just start doing something and then I grab another picture and I look at that and I start doing something and so I'm working from memory and from these pictures the pictures form a kind of structure how I'm going to move forward 
but it's a very amorphous sort of process. I mean, I would never want to ex teach it or explain it to anyone because it sort of sounds, it's like learned chaos in a way. <laughs> right. Um, and, but every time I've tried to pre-plan things more, it really didn't work. It felt very forced, static, and contrived, and uh, it did, so that didn't, that didn't work for me. And I've also tried projecting things right on to scale, and that doesn't work for me either. For some reason, I work better from smaller images that I blow up just by eye, by hand. Hmm. So, and I guess that does, as you say, a lot of that comes back to the, just the confidence and handling the material and the confidence in my eye that I have from, you know, decade and a half doing this. Sure, sure. Well, and, and so then if you're you're working on some, as you, you describe them to be more, I guess, realistic, I mean, um, are the, the, the kind of floor pieces also kind of something that you're working on at the same time then? Yeah, yeah, I'm working on those and uh, silver point drawings also. Um, and... I'm working on them. I sort of rotate between them all, and I seem to have uh, an affinity for, you know, two or three or four materials right now. The floor pieces are made out of cardboard that's collaged and ripped, and I use casein on the cardboard, so it sinks right in. And that was a conscious decision when I was out in New Mexico. I wanted the driest material possible, so casein on cardboard seemed like that would be <laughs> fairly dry, because I wanted to really sort of rip replicate the desert floor and um, the silver points I just like the touch of the silver point my, my line drawings are pretty um, you know fragile and, and hard to detect so the silver point works best for that <coughs> or works well for that and um, I mean the other reason I'm interested in the floor pieces right now is that it it involves another mode of looking because you know the landscapes are very much about gazing out onto the horizon, looking kind of panning. Mm -hmm. Whereas the desert floor pieces and the, the wave pieces that I've done are much more physical. They're much more about sort of standing on the surface and what does that feel like under foot. And so I just was interested and quite excited about taking on these two different forms of looking and challenging myself to really see if I could pull it off. Well, and how, um, obviously, too, I, I think, you know, something um, is just that those those things are going to kind of inform each other yeah. you know, in different ways and kind of kind of open you up to kind of new things. Um, yeah, very much so, yeah. And so, I don't know, I, I've, I've always, it's funny, I, I wind up telling that to dance students, it seems like a lot, even just to have, even if you, because if, even if you, do, not not necessarily in terms of a, you know, obviously you're you're doing this in, in a much different place, but I mean, just kind of being able to, have something that you don't kind of care about in the same way, maybe, or, you know, I've been, I've started making these, I guess, as of yesterday, these paintings from, from left, leftover paint mm -hmm. that, that seem to have no relationship at all, really, to kind yeah. of anything other than the, the, the formal abstract elements of my paintings. Um, so that's kind of interesting and I guess maybe yeah. somewhat similar, but, um, well, I mean, a lot of it, when I started the floor pieces, I, I was just bumbling through. I mean, I thought, well, what are these? Are they paintings that fell off the wall? Are they drawings? Are they, are they sculpture? I don't even know. I mean, I just call them floor pieces for lack of a better word. And I mean, they are painted. Mm -hmm. They're not, I wouldn't really say they're sculpture, but um, I I just wanted to do it. And actually what, what got me going with that was I had a show in Boston and 
it was a really quirky gallery with this weird corner. And I just mm-hmm. thought, well, I have to deal with that corner, so I might as well make a piece that fits in the corner. <laughs> right, right. But I did. You know, I made a piece tailor-made for that corner, and that was actually what got me going. So um, just a silly reason like that, no, not not a large metaphysical reason, but just a you know reason based on the space I had to deal with. Well, and I think more and more now that I'm now when I have a show, I tend to want to know more about the space than I did before. Before I would. You know, know roughly the size of the gallery and I'd plan out how many paintings do I need to fill this gallery but now I'm thinking a lot more about well what are the walls like how high are the ceilings where are the corners just thinking a lot more about installation well and, and too obviously just the, the way that it's going to be you know received by yourself but then also people that might see it so I mean what mm-hmm. what is that relationship like I guess I mean do you I mean do you find that you have, I, I think most, it's, I could be wrong, but it seems to me like I, I think most people kind of think about themselves first, um, maybe before, you know, what some random stranger is going to kind of walk through and sing on. But it seems like a lot of, you know, what you're after is done in, in the investigation of it. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, in that sense, you know, what kind of reactions or, you know, experiences do people, I guess, talk to you that, that seem interesting or relevant, I guess, maybe that you hadn't thought of? Um... Well, I think the, it's, you know, it's fascinating. I mean, people will, I remember somebody saw my work and, and said, do you realize how funny your work is? And I, I just thought, no. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I mean, I, if anything, I think I have to catch myself and take myself too seriously. I mean, I, I didn't think my work was funny at all, but I, they were talking about a piece that I'd done, um, with uh, this was way back in grad school actually with a bunch of little knees and hands in it and I thought it was very serious you know about the body and whatnot and they thought it was very funny but um, it's it's just absolutely impossible to predict what people will think or say I, I like I like the fact that references come up all the time that I never even considered when people uh, see my work and it doesn't it can be anybody it doesn't have to even be somebody that um, knows anything about art someone that just happens to come into the gallery and, or whatever your work is and sees the work um, I have, I've been quite happy with the reaction people have given to the floor pieces and people really responded well to those and saw connections between the paintings um, and but I um, in, in the other part of my life which is well, one other part of my life which is to teach I noticed last term a number of students said to me, um, or they would say critiques, well, I have to really, I'm keep trying to keep my work fairly neutral to allow a space for the viewer. And that really troubled me the more I thought about that, because I thought, hang on a minute, you know, most of the people I'm really interested in, they were so, um, uh, you know, internalized and so, uh, their work was so rarefied in some ways that, that's what makes it interesting. I mean, look at the poet Emily Dickinson. You know, did she, was she leaving a space for the viewer? I very much doubt it, or the space for the reader. And I think that that's, students shouldn't think that way, that they should leave a space for the viewer. I think viewers are, are way more intrigued by, you know, the more esoteric the work, the more I think people like it and, and, and enjoy it and relate to it. So, I don't know, I don't really understand that whole notion of, keeping your work neutral to allow space for the viewer. <laughs> I just right. don't really know what that means, you know, because I think 
definitely for me, the more headspace that I give my work, the more obsessive I get about you know, the quirks and the odd things, the more people seem to really like it. So, right. Not that that's why I do it, but that's that's what seems to happen. Well, and it's interesting because I, you know, I've, um, I have a couple of questions that I've that I've actually recapped for other people since they were mm-hmm. earlier podcasts. Um, but it it really makes me want to just go back and talk to everybody about the viewer, you know. Cause it, <laughs> it, it, I mean, it. I think in a way, it seems like the the way to kind of help you think a, just a little bit in terms of like seeing this from somebody else's perspective. But it, it's something that I think. And I know, you know, just there's certain people that I know that are, are decent artists that really spend so much time kind of worrying about that aspect of how it's going to be received that they don't, I don't think they make it quite to that point where it's just like they're on this journey. And mm-hmm. I don't know, it kind of maybe makes me sound very old fashioned in some regards, but I mean, I think, I mean, I think that's what makes it so, I think that's the kind of work that I really respond to, you know, the kind of things that you don't really get hit over the head with right away, but kind of start to kind of have in these, you know, learning about something in these kind of discussions that you might have with people or the way that, you know, people are kind of receiving it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's very interesting to, to listen to you talk about that. Um, and so, you know, you've well, talked... Also, Dave, I think, I mean, there are, there are a lot of artists working now in a social practice mode post-studio where they don't, you don't work like I do, um, where they work very much for um and and they work very much for the community and in a community spirit mm-hmm. and so yeah you know that's that's just a, a very different way of working than i have and um uh so i you know i very much i'm interested in that work i respect that work but it's not what i do but i think that work doesn't demand the same type of questions because it's 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 taking that on. It's 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 uh, very much addressing uh, a community and, and usually um, a community outside of uh, an art community. Um, so, I you know my work is in some ways more narrow than that, um, and I'm okay with that. You know, I think perhaps when I was in grad school, I wouldn't have liked to have admitted that, but now I feel like you know you, you know yourself, you know your work as you, as you get move on, you know, if you move on as a person, you move on in time, and I think, you know, I, my work is not social practice, and it's never going to be, so I'm, uh, I'm you know, I'm fine with that. Sure. Well, and so you've you talked, you know, a little bit about that Edward Casey book that you were mm-hmm. talking about. Um, what other um, kinds of research or things do you kind of find interest in, I guess, that, that kind of inform that, or that, that dialogue that's in your studio? Mm-hmm. Um, that's always, it's always shifting, um, it's always changing. I, right now I'm actually reading a, a Scottish writer called George Mackay Brown that my parents turned me on to, uh, who writes about the Isle of Orkney. He's a lifelong Arcadian, um, and he writes about Orkney and the, the, the characters in this make-believe village. Uh, and, you know, it's, I mean, it's a very tight-knit, isolated community, but in some ways it's sort of a um, the crucible or, or I don't quite know the right word, but it's almost like representative of any village anywhere, you know, so it's, it's quite, it's got universal appeal, but I mean, I, I get a lot of ideas 
from just you know phrases or sentences that I'd find in books. For example, I made a whole series of work called Simmer Dim from a a phrase that's used to describe a certain quality of light, the simmer dim in Scotland in, in the winter. So the simmer dim is when it never really gets completely black. It's this sort of bluey, the sky is this bluey colour 24 hours a day. And I just thought it was an absolutely beautiful term, simmer dim. Um, so, I mean, just so many things. I don't really have a research agenda. And in case he's somebody I come back to a lot, and uh, you know, there are times when I when I read a lot. Ifu Tan is somebody I've read a fair amount of, um, <clears throat> and I I'll read quite a lot and not be so active in the studio. And then when I'm active in the studio, sometimes I'm not reading a lot. But I mean, I like to stay on top of what's what's out there. So I um, I mean, that's one nice thing about teaching as well, especially teaching graduate students. You have to really know. They keep you on, you know. They keep you on top of things. Um, I mean, I was interested in this book I read not long ago. Uh, it's a, a book called um, Art School Propositions for the Twenty First Century, and it's as a teacher, I became very interested in, you know, just really thinking about well, how do we revamp? what we teach all the time, how we can't just keep trotting out the same old drawing one. How does drawing one change as a class, for example, as you know, computer technology gets more advanced and we, we, have, we move more and more online. And then I, in, light, in, in the same vein, I was reading this book called Richard Todd. I think it's called The Thing Itself, The Search for Authenticity. And he takes, he takes all of these ideas that are fairly well well-known, like Baudrillard's ideas of simulation and he just sort of talks about how we're becoming less and less and less removed from or sorry, we're becoming more and more removed from, you know, actual real life experiences and, you know, we think we're more attuned to what people are thinking and feeling through Twitter and Facebook but it's actually more and more and more um, removed from us and there's an irony there you know, and um, so it's a beautifully written book. It's sort of observations about this notion through different aspects of his life. <clears throat> um, so, you know, there's, there's things that come my way that I, I'll take on, and I'm actually going to give sections of that book to my graduate students this this coming term, and that's a book I, I really just read, so I can add it in last minute. But, sure. You know, it, it just... The stuff just sort of filters in, and it's um, it's amazing how that happens, really. Well, and so you know, since since you you know we talked a, a bit about teaching, you know, um, is there other any kind of uh, specific strategies or advice that you might give to a, to a student? I, I would I have this question about you know whether or not somebody would be encouraged to kind of you know partake into studying art, and obviously since you teach, I would imagine that's something that you kind of believe in. So I mean. You know, what do you, I guess, what do you kind of like to see out of, of people then, or at least would, I guess, hope that they would investigate to kind of really, to do it, I guess, or to really see if that's what they're interested in? Well, I really try not to impose any points of view. I think it's so important for teachers to find, really listen to students, see what, see if you can find what that student is struggling to hit on and then help draw that out. Because rather than impose a point of view, 
it's so easy to, to fall into that trap because sometimes students are like I was in grad school this complete blank slate where you just felt like you needed somebody to come and tell you what to do right. and you know because so much of art making is about choices um, you know directions to follow and you really only find out I, I find I only found out what I wanted to do by doing a lot of what I didn't want to do and what didn't work and which is plain bad work um, so I think that you really have to be good at hearing out a student, hearing what their idea is, and not just jumping in and saying, oh, do you know that this artist does that, or this artist does that, or you should read this, you should look at this, and even or even try and move them away from that and say, well, that's not a very good idea, you should really think about this instead. I think imposing is a terrible strategy. So I, I think I also like to sort of... Um, I, I talk a lot about my life as an artist when I'm teaching. I mean, I, I don't try and separate that out. And I, I, I say, well, when I'm in the studio, I try and do blah, blah, blah. Or when I'm reading or researching, I try and do blah, blah, blah. Just to kind of make it seem like we're all in this together. And I don't like the idea of me, I'm there and you're down there and I'm passing on my knowledge to you um, and you better loosen up. <laughs> it's not... I don't think about it like that at all. I think also treating students like artists. I mean, if, if you call students artists and fellow artists, I think they really respect and love that and don't like to be, even though, of course, they know they're a student and I know they're a student, I think they don't like to always be reminded of that. And um, So it's, I think, to try to be as casual as possible as well and... Um, uh, I, I, I talk a lot about my own failures and my own struggles in school and how even though I'm on the other side and I am in the institution, I also sort of treat the institution with a pinch of salt. And I always say to students, you know, you're going to really grow and blossom when you get out of here and you're, you know, you have to make decisions on your own. You're not going to have people's voices breathing down your neck. I kind of try and prepare students for what's to come afterwards and don't just treat it as this nucleus of time that I have with them so you know and I, I when I'm teaching undergrads I do have very structured classes I mean I have projects things that lead one onto the next try and make it flow and I also talk a lot about working in series I think that's important because I think a lot of times in undergraduate bouncing around from one project to the next that it's not really fair on students they can't Get any sense of flowing fluidity in their work so I try and get them to work on less projects but to make more um, even if it's just two projects or three projects but they're allowed to make three or four or five pieces from that one project and it gives, that gives them more of a sense of reality to how artists actually work sure sure so well and so you know you, you talk you talk a little bit about you know through having like these life more life discussions or, or kind of interjecting into that. And so I guess I want to now a little bit. Um, so, you know, obviously you have a family and, and, you know, are teaching full time is that, I mean, how do you find, I guess, time to kind of, uh, coordinate that with keeping your studio practice? Do you have kind of like a routine or, um, is it, is it something that you just kind of have to manage like a bunch of pots and pans? Like a bunch of pots and pans going on a stove, you got to like make sure one doesn't boil over and that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, it really is. I mean, you know, maybe you should ask me that question in four months' time because I've actually been off teaching for um, slightly, you know, over a year. So I, 
I haven't had that part in the mix, so maybe you should come back to me and give <laughs> that question. But, well, you know, I, I guess I sort of try and, I don't, I, you know, I'm try, I try not to think of, of what artists do as being special or different from, say, what a doctor does or a, I mean, other people out there have families too, and I mean, I, I think it's very much, you know, I have a, I have a work ethic, I have to get to the studio to make the work, it doesn't happen through divine inspiration, as we all know. Mm-hmm. So it's just it's it is it is difficult to find the time. I have to admit when you have children, um, because there just is less time. Um, so I I've actually managed to devise ways of working that don't involve long periods, like eight or nine hours. Um, and um, so I mean, working in layers, which I do anyway. That's sort of that's excellent for my lifestyle because I can work in a couple of layers and then leave. Right. and come back and work another couple of layers. But, I mean, I'm pretty good at managing um, five or six or seven different things throughout a day and also changing gears uh, just because I've become good at it. And um, But again, like I said earlier, I just don't like to try and... I, I like to think, all right, there's you know hundreds of millions of other people out there that have... You know, are looking after aging parents or looking after children or doing whatever and holding down a job and holding down a second job. I mean, I'm lucky that I just have one job. So um, I just, you know, think, all right, well, that's, that's you know, I have to just be, be good at all of these things. And then also, you know, we're very fortunate to have the summers off and, you know, that's when sure. I can catch up on a lot of stuff too. Well, and so, um, you know, what, what kind of distract? I guess other di- kind of distractions in terms of enjoyment. Um, I, I've I found I don't know. I, it wasn't until yesterday that I, you know, that I'm that I'm um, trying to make this little awful painting work. Um, oh. After I, after I finished working on the the real one. Um, yeah right. But um, it was it was funny because um you know my friend that I just had on Kevin Curry recently you know he, and a number of other people just talked about this idea of sitting sitting in silence at times and just kind of working. So yeah. I guess, uh, what do you, do you, are you a silence person or, um, I don't know, do you listen to music or talk radio or any other kinds of things? Well, I, I when I tried to be a silence person, I once took a Tai Chi class and I was, I was the person that kept opening their eyes during the meditation. <laughs> I just hopeless at that. So probably I'm not a silence person, but well, I, I, I'm a frustrated pastry chef, I have to say. If I wasn't an artist, I'd probably be pastry chef. I absolutely love baking. I'm addicted to baking. And I also um, really like running. And I haven't been doing a lot of running recently, but running in some ways is sort of similar to being in the studio. It's kind of solitary. And, you've, you know, you've got sort of something that you're going to... There's kind of beginning, middle, and end to to it in the same way there is in making an artwork. So I... And sometimes I have to be careful that I don't just <laughs> embark on all these solitary activities. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'll have, I have stuff going in the studio. I mean, I'll listen to podcasts in the studio, but I also put on Pandora, and I, I usually listen to, I mean, I, I'll put, I've got one of my Pandora stations is Seager Ross. I've got Seager Ross, and I've got Mom, and I've got Woodbine, and I've got, but then I like Brazilian music too, and I feel like I need something that's not going to, just put me in that ethereal headspace. So I've got Juana Molina, I really like her, and Katana Velosa. Um, 
and uh, and then actually, believe it or not, I, I really also will we'll just put on some trashy stuff like Katy Perry, just <laughs> because I've got to just get going and moving, you know. Sure, <laughs> sure. Light a bomb under myself, but um, but I, I, I mean, in terms of I don't know outside stuff right now. I mean, it's it's quite difficult with my. Uh, I'm going back to teaching and I'm just sort of focusing on that and uh, the work. I'm getting ready for two shows right now. Of course, it's synchro, it's like feast or famine. I'm going back to work and I've got two shows opening at the same time. One's in Chicago, actually, um, and one's the sabbatical show for my work in New Mexico here. So I'm really crazy busy just trying to get work finished and uh, try to sort of devise in my head these two different shows, how to make them feel different and uh, it's quite hard to coordinate at all. Well, and so um, I guess which, which one, what are they coming up? And I figure we should at least talk a little bit about about where people could go see them if they're in the yeah, area. Yeah, putting um, a, put a plug. Well, the one in Chicago is at Ebersmore. Okay. And that's opening the 17th of February. And the one in here at uh, UMass where I teach in, in Amherst is opening uh, March the 1st. So if anybody's in the area, come on up. Of course, uh, the shows are simultaneous, so I can't use the same work. Right, um, right. So, I mean, even though I had the, the year in New Mexico, I worked quite slowly, so I just uh, wasn't able to make, uh, you know, enough work for, to, you know, to have two simultaneous shows going on. So I've been making new work, which has been great, but um, it's it's tricky. It's tricky to manage it. I suppose if... If I had one selfish uh, desire there, I would I would have a studio assistant that would help me uh, in the kind of you know nuts and bolts of being in the studio. Sure, <laughs> we would all like that, though, right? <laughs> I think. Well, yeah. I don't know that I would be able to direct anybody though. <laughs> well, I know. I, I mean, maybe for certain things, cutting cutting things yeah. to specific sizes. But um, I've often kind of wondered that because you know, for example, when you're mixing something. Yeah. And you have no idea what what it needs, or you're kind of yeah. like figuring out that process. You think about like how awkward it would be to try to explain to somebody like, I know that's the wrong kind of red. It's got to be more. Yeah, it's too Dumber blue. Or, or, right. Yeah, I right. You're saying, I but once I did hire a student to to scan a bunch of slides because I mean, I'm of the generation where we were half slides, half digital. Uh, she scanned all my slides and then she oversaturated every single one. So when she gave me the images back, it looked like somebody else's work, and I had to put them all back in Photoshop and desaturate them. And I thought, well, that was a waste of time. Right, <laughs> right. So I think you know, studio assistants work when somebody's been around you a lot and knows your work, and then you don't have to explain things. So, but I know what you mean. When I'm working on a painting, you know, you, you do sort of unorthodox things all the time, like you just, you know. You might add, you know, a bunch of uh, turpentine into something or do something crazy that really you shouldn't do. And if you try to explain that to someone, they'd say, well, that's breaking the rule. Right. But, you know, it makes sense for you, but it makes sense for anybody else. Sure, sure. Well, and, you know, something that, you know, I know that we've talked about too and something that you kind of brought up a little bit um, in terms of the residency and, like, production and that. I mean, I think the other thing that's so strange about being in those spaces or during those times too is that you have this time you know and it's it's something that i kind of really felt self-conscious about after i did 
you know, a number of those residencies back to back because mm-hmm. I, I felt like I should have more work from it. Um, yeah. And it, I think partially it's just, you, I don't know, it's very easy to be caught up in this production mode without thinking about everything. So there's something that's nice about, you know, put, painting in an area and kind of seeing how it plays out and mm-hmm. kind of taking a little bit of time to actually reflect on it instead of just feel like you're, mm-hmm. you know, like I've got a deadline and you're kind of so focused that you're going to be focusing on that until it's done, you know? Right. Um, and so I guess lastly, um, this is, this is your last question. I think we've kind of got everything nicely out of order, <laughs> um, which is good. Um, it's not a hard one. <laughs> oh no, it's not. Um, it, and it's related to exhibition stuff, but I mean, you know, um, you know, I usually ask people, you know, who, you know, who they're maybe influenced by, but then also what was the last, I guess, show that you saw that really, um, you know, really kind of excited you and kind of felt, you know, kind of made you want to get back in the studio and, I guess, outdo it? Oh, my goodness. Let's, let's which, see. Which seems uh, impossible, right? I think when was the last time I went to see a show. Um, well, let's see. Well, you know, it was funny when I was in New Mexico. It was uh, where I was in Roswell. There weren't a lot of um, there were there weren't really very many things to see except the local art museum. But I, I don't know. I have to say, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think back, and um, I saw a Tara Donovan show at the ICA. It was a couple of years ago, and it just was stunning. Stunning. I mean, it really, really sort of stunned me. Um, I suppose in some ways it kind of brought me back to when I was doing the, the envelope pieces. I mean, how she managed this, how she transforms materials so that the material disappears. The paper cups disappear, the tinfoil disappears, the straws disappear, and, and it's just phenomenal how she does that. I, that was that was really uh, striking. Um, and then I saw, I saw Ellen Gallagher's latest show in New York, um, I was at the Gagosian, I think, in Chelsea, and I really, really liked what she was doing with um, uh, the the back, the the drawings, which were um, front and back. In fact, they were—I don't think they were drawings, or I think they were actually drawings, or some kind of etchings on glass or plexi, and they walked around the whole thing. And I thought those were really quite interesting. And um, some of the pieces, some of the paintings that she had with them. Um, <coughs> I think black on black, that she was putting kind of glossy black on a matte black, and, and I've always liked that she's. I like to work thematically as well. Um, and I saw uh, oh, there's a show at the New Museum. Um, the heck's the guy's name? Um, it's not George Condo. I saw that show in New York. Oh, Dave, you've got me. But there was a, a show. I'll have to get back to this guy's name. But he, one of the series of paintings that he had were um, uh, very large um, paintings that reminded me of, of early Philip Guston. I'll get, I'll get you his name. I can't remember. I'm having a complete blank. But um, there was a room full of his abstract paintings and. They were just actually it might have been George Condo. I can't really remember, but anyway, there were a room full of these paintings that just looked like tangled webs. Um, that looked like early Guston, and they were just they were really huge paintings, maybe thirteen feet by twelve, and they were just again stunning, just as paint handling. Just and, and the, the fact that they sort of looked like words or language, I was 
love those. Right. Um, and then I actually saw Linda Bangles show that her sculptures really were terrific. I really liked the sort of poured um, piles that she had that she made. I mean, they're quite sort of just how she pulled that off, that level of a massive material and uh, the scale of them was, was pretty stunning. And I didn't really know her work outside of the more political sure. feminist. And that, that was that was really terrific to see this other part of her work. That's just what's coming into my head. Well, no. I, I don't think that was too much of a stump. Um, <laughs> it, of course, things can always be edited um, yeah. Which I which I often do when I have a when I have a day, um, but they're usually more like five episodes of me forgetting entirely what I'm talking about. So, oh, yeah. um, but well, um, I, I can't believe I, that painting show I saw. I can't even remember exactly the <laughs> name. I, I believe it's George Condor, but hey, I could be wrong. Anyway. Sure. Um, and so again, um, we've, we've you've got two shows coming up, so I'm hoping that everybody, well, that that can uh, will check those out. Are you going to be in Chicago for, yeah. for the opening in February? Yep. Okay. Coming out for that, so. Well, that'll be that'll be fun to to hopefully see the work and and catch up a little bit more. So, um, thanks again for for yeah, talking to me this morning. To thanks so much, Dave. And I just wanted to also say uh, thanks a lot for running this whole series. It's fantastic. I I actually did some homework yesterday and listened to a couple of them, and I was mesmerized. I, I was in my own studio listening to other people talk about their studio practice. It was quite a meta experience. <laughs> it kind of feels like a. Um, a, a help group or something <laughs> at times. Well, you, you feel like, you know, you don't feel quite so isolated. You think, oh, there's other nut, nut jobs out there doing the same thing. <laughs> thanks again to Shona for joining us today at Studio Break. And thanks again to you listening. If you want to find out more about her work and see some of it, please visit her website, shonamcdonald.com. Of course, for those of you living in Chicago or Massachusetts, I'd highly recommend checking out our solo exhibitions in February and March. Please check our website for more information in the news section. Music today was brought to you by Brazilian artists from freemusicarchive.com called Mambojo. Again, I'm probably completely screwing up pronunciation here, but the song is entitled Aumento o Volume. This is a reminder, too, that I'll also have some new work up on my website in the next few days, davidlinaway.com. Other than that, I just hope everybody's enjoying the new year, getting some work done, and spending plenty of time on Studio Break, checking out these podcasts. Again, if you've missed any of them, they're all archived at studiobreak.com. And if you haven't become a fan yet on Facebook, please, please do so. It's a great way to get new announcements and to check in and leave some comments. So we hope to hear from you real soon.